Ketamine is a Schedule III drug with a long history as an anesthetic. It's also a well-known club drug on the party circuit. How can it be that it has anti-addictive properties and might be useful to treat alcoholism? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Ross. Dr. Ross is the Director of the Division of Alcoholism and Drug Abuse at Bellevue Hospital, as well as the Associate Director for Addiction Fellowship Training and Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at the NYU School of Medicine. Welcome to ReachMD, Steve. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you for having me. Ketamine appears to be a contradiction. Here it's a drug of abuse and a treatment of abusers. Um, why don't we start with the background, Steve? Has it really been around for more than 40 years? It has. It was first synthesized in uh, 1962 by the American chemist Calvin Stevens at the University of Michigan. And actually at the time when PCP was actually available as an anesthetic, and during this period, PCP was found to be too psychotogenic, that patients would wake up and be floridly psychotic. And they were looking for something that was less psychotogenic and had a shorter half-life. So they were able to come up with ketamine in 1966. It was then patented by Park Davis, the pharmaceutical company. And then in 1970, it was FDA-approved as an anesthetic in children, adults, and the elderly, and really has been available since then. And some people are actually surprised to hear that. And its use is primarily now in clinical settings and emergency room settings and kids that break their bones and orthopedic surgeons like to use it. Why do they like it? Well, it's it's safer in that you don't have to use general anesthesia Mm -hmm. and that the children are sensitive and at lower doses, they essentially dissociate. And so their eyes are wide open and you know, the orthopedic surgeon can sort of do what they need to and the children experience no pain. And for some reason, they have a like uh, a lower likelihood of developing any of the side effects like some of the psychotic phenomena that we see with ketamine. And what's the mechanism of action of ketamine? Ketamine is part of a, a family of aryl cyclohexylamines, and it's categorized as a dissociative anesthetic, but it's also in psychiatry categorized as a hallucinogen. And it's actually a true hallucinogen in that it, it can reproduce all the symptoms of psychosis, positive symptoms, negative symptoms, cognitive symptoms. Its main mechanism of action is that it blocks the NMDA glutamate receptor. That's one of the ionotropic glutamate receptors, and that mediates its dissociative, psychotogenic, analgesic, and psychospiritual effects. But in addition, ketamine is sort of a, a dirty drug in that it has other mechanisms as well. It has opiate-like effects. It affects the mu receptor. It has stimulant-like properties. And so some have actually uh, quoted as saying it has alcohol-like intoxication, cocaine-like stimulation, opiate-like calming, and cannabis-like imagery. So it actually has multiple neuropharmacologic effects. So I presume that's what people are after with the high is the psychedelic kind of high? You know, interestingly, starting in the 90s, it became available as a club drug. I mean, actually, ever since it was introduced, there were reports of abuse. Starting in the early 70s, it was linked with intellectual hedonism. And then in the 80s, we saw healthcare workers starting to get addicted And then in the 90s, this sort of phenomenon of it being included in club-like settings, and the users really are looking for sort of the psycho-spiritual, psychedelic properties, and they like the fact that it's so short-acting, that its onset is in about 10 minutes, and it's over in about an hour. So really quick. It's a pretty quick-acting drug, yes. And how do they do it? Do they smoke it, shoot it, snort it? They can do all of them. The, the most common at clubs is they do bumps of it, meaning they um, will snort it. But you can also inject ketamine intramuscularly. 
and you could even shoot it IV. But the most common, I would say, is snorting. Actually, you could even smoke it as well. So are there any um, subgroups that seem to be particularly at risk for ketamine abuse? For example, gay men, younger people. Is it sorted out that way at all? Yeah, you know, there, there tends to be two distinct categories of users. There's the um, sort of new age seekers that, that seek it out for its sort of spiritual and transcendental kinds of properties. And they tend not to abuse it. They tend to use it sort of in very limited ritualistic kinds of settings where it's a more kind of meditative experience and it's not a party setting. Mm-hmm. But younger kids that go to raise, and in particular gay men, it's become um, popular in circuit party so they seem to be at higher risk. And in fact, there are a couple of studies looking at the epidemiology in these groups. And there was one study in Britain that showed about 30% of club goers over their lifetime reported having used ketamine. And then there was another study in New York City at a circuit party with about 170 mostly Caucasian gay men. And ketamine was the most popular drug used at this particular party. Ecstasy was first at about 70%. But number two was ketamine at about half of all people who attended this party used ketamine. Okay, I'm showing my age now, but I have no idea what a circuit party is. (laughs) How embarrassing. (laughs) So a circuit party is one of these 72-hour parties. It usually involves a group of, of gay men. They tend to be affluent, tend to be more Caucasian, and they will pick a place as a retreat and it's essentially, it's a three-day party, and there's a lot of club drugs that go around ecstasy, ketamine, also crystal meth are big at these kinds of parties, GHB. There's a lot of high-risk sexual activity that can go on at these kinds of parties. So there's sort of the equivalent of a rave, but specifically for... Um, for gay men. I'm not sure if we have those in Idaho. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now, ketamine has been looked at as an antidepressant, right? That's correct. In fact, within psychiatry, that's where you really will see it a lot now. Starting with John Crystal's a researcher at Yale who's uh, looked at ketamine to help elucidate the NMDA antagonist hypothesis of schizophrenia. And he was interested in blocking the NMDA receptor and how it relates to psychotic symptoms. And as a serendipitous finding in his research, some of the participants reported acute reductions in depression. And this really led the groundwork. There's now been a couple randomized controlled studies that have looked at this, one by Carlos Zarate at NIMH and a couple other people. And ketamine is the only agent we know that can affect acute reduction in depressive symptoms mm-hmm. in patients with major depression. And it appears that about 60% of people with major depression respond with one dose, one time, and it can last up to two weeks. So there's a lot of excitement now about how ketamine might be able to help us take a look at the biological basis of depression. And it really seems to be a truly novel psychopharmacologic effect with depression and probably its most promising future indication. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Ross. We are discussing the possibility of using ketamine to treat addictive disorders. So, Steve, how might ketamine be useful to treat addiction? It seems so counterintuitive that a drug that makes you high could possibly keep you from getting high, or from using anyway. Well, it's a a real sort of interesting 
dilemma because we know ketamine is addictive. We know that it lights up the parts of the brain, such as the nucleus accumbens, that mediate reward and addiction. We know it increases dopamine transmission in the vital reward-related areas, such as the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens. So it's, it's interesting that there's a researcher, Yevgeny Krupitsky, who's from Russia, who uh, starting in 1985 developed a technique using ketamine called ketamine psychedelic psychotherapy. And from 85 to 2002, until ketamine was made illegal and banned in Russia, he treated over 1,000 alcoholics and then heroin addicts with ketamine. It had some pretty interesting findings. So in one study in the 90s, he gave ketamine as a one-time dose to alcohol-dependent patients in addition to their standard you know, psychotherapy and other treatment for addiction and compared them to a, the control group or a group that was getting treatment as usual in the clinic and found that 66% of the ones that got the one-time ketamine dose integrated into a meaning-oriented type of psychotherapy were sober at one year, and the control group, 24% were sober. And then he followed this up with a double-blind placebo-controlled trial in heroin-dependent patients where the, he gave 2 milligrams per kilogram IM of ketamine once versus 0.2 milligrams per kilogram as the um, active placebo. And there was 35 patients in each arm. And the one-time dose, all the way up to two years, there was a significant difference in abstinent rates between the experimental group and the placebo. And even at two years, 18% of the experimental group was sober versus 2% of the control group. And so it, these were some, you know, even though these numbers are relatively small, he you know, has treated many other people and has more experience. So it's interesting to see how, you know, or to think why would ketamine potentially have anti-addictive properties? And that was a sort of interesting thing for, for me to think about. Mm-hmm. And so one thing would be to look at the biologic properties of ketamine, and, and in particular the NMDA receptor. There are other NMDA antagonists that have anti-addictive properties. Mantine is an example, the Alzheimer's drug. Acamprosate is another example, a drug called Ibogaine, Actually, it's, it's not available, Ibogaine, but it is something that's used in Africa and, and is available to treat opiate addiction. So one theory may be that it's replacing or restoring the tone of the NMDA receptor that has become deficient in alcohol dependence, especially in withdrawal states. And going back to why it might be helpful in opiates, because it's a mu-opiate agonist, there's one possibility there as well. Other possibilities have to do with altering glutamate transmission. Glutamate is really emerging as a, um, a neurotransmitter that is abnormal in the addicted state, that it's hyperglutamatergic responses to drug cues and hypoglutamatergic responses to, to biologically oriented ones. So people are looking at how to alter glutamate. And a very interesting thing about ketamine is even though it blocks the NMDA receptor, there is some evidence that it actually may increase glutamate function by blocking GABAergic receptors that are normally inhibitory on glutamate ones. Although this is speculative, it's led some to think that blocking the NMDA receptor is what mediates the anti-addictive properties and the parts of it that lead to hyperglutamatergic responses and other glutamate receptors might mediate its addictive liability. Mm-hmm. Again, quite speculative that's the, the biologic side of things. Now, some would say 
it helps in addiction because it makes depression better and that it's an indirect mm-hmm. uh, response. And there's you know some data to suggest this. And then to me, the part of it that's very interesting is that these, these sort of very pronounced psycho-spiritual effects, ketamine can induce, um, unlike other NMDA, the other NMDA antagonists that I mentioned, like micamprosate and uh, memantine, ketamine can induce these very profound mystical spiritual states where people have the sense of experiencing psychological, you know, death of their ego, rebirth of their ego. They have near-death experiences. They can have emotionally intense visions, dreamlike states. They can have uh, enhanced sense of meaning of things, greater capacity for insight, a change in percepts or how they, you know, construe the world. And these mystical states where they sort of feel connected to the universe, to God, and there's something about these states that have the ability to transform people. And we see this in the addiction world. We're, we're used to thinking of spirituality mm-hmm. as a vehicle for treatment and conversion to sober states. So it's interesting to think that it may be the induction of a spiritual state that leads uh, someone to have certain insights that lead them to sobriety. After just one dose? It seems implausible and one thing about the Kropitsky studies is he doesn't say exactly what kind of addiction treatment they get afterwards. And it would seem to me that one dose would be unlikely. But we hear people, you know, you treat enough addicts, they will tell you about a very significant incident and uh, almost dying from drugs or some other kind of very powerful transformative event that you know, change them forever. And so it's possible that if the experience is intense enough, maybe it changes people. But more likely that it may lead to a a change in behavior for a period of time. And then it may be that if this ever were to become available as a treatment, it would need to follow like an ECT kind of model where you'd have to dose it repeatedly to integrate the experience mm-hmm to have booster sessions, if you will, if it were to be found helpful. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Dr. Stephen Ross at NYU about the possible use of ketamine to treat addiction. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and downloadable podcast, visit our website at www.reachmd.com. For comments and questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. 